Alright, you guys can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of John. John chapter 12 is where we're going to be tonight. Um, so it's uh, kind of been a long time coming. Uh, we have spent some time in, in various places in the scriptures over the last few weeks. Um, my iPad is not flipping. There we go. Uh, you guys know that um, I had COVID, and so uh, the last couple of weeks have been spent in trying to recover, in trying to uh, get back to normal, and so um, I have dipped into the archives a number of times um, in preaching over the last couple of weeks, and um, just haven't had the opportunity to study and and be um, myself for a while. And so today we're finally getting back to this series uh, entitled Replant. Uh, for those of you that were with us before, you know that uh, previous to this series, we had a series called Uproot. And in the Uproot series, we talked about repentance, repenting of sin, uprooting out of our lives things that ought not be there. Um, for, for some, that might mean a, a, a big sin, maybe something that you've been uh, keeping hidden in the shadows, uh, a bad habit. Maybe for some, it, it was about surrendering to Christ for the very first time. So repentance uproots what ought not be there. And once we've done that, God can then plant what is supposed to be there. He can tend to that seed and, and cause it to bear fruit. And so the purpose of this series is to talk about what it means to be a fruitful Christian. How we plant, how we allow the Lord rather to plant good seed in our hearts so that it can bear fruit. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 and 23 we know that Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And so we want to be the type of people that are growing that type of fruit um, in our lives. And so, what kind of seed needs to be planted in the soil of our hearts in order to bear something good and fruitful? Today, we'll be looking at the seed of surrendered life. And what we're going to see in John chapter 12 is that Jesus shows us what it takes to plant fruit-bearing seed. And what it takes is death. Our lives are fully lived for the kingdom of God when we are dead to this world. Um, in 2003, Tom Cruise starred in the movie The Last Samurai. Raise your hand if you've ever seen the Last Samurai. Okay, a few of you, that's good. Uh, some of you were probably in diapers when that came out. Um, maybe barely even speaking in 2003. Um, and so you'll have to go back into ancient history um, in order to see it. But I, I highly recommend it. My dad and I went to the theater to go and watch this movie. And I specifically remember that this movie impacted my dad and myself more than most of the movies that we had watched together. And my dad had this nickname, we, we used to call him Moral Man, because it was impossible for him to watch a show, a movie, anything, without afterwards deriving the moral from it. Okay? He would get this, this pensive look 
in his eye, and, and I could tell that the gears were turning. And I would look over at him and I would go, dun-dun-da-da, moral man, tell us what the moral is. And he would begin to wax eloquent and expound on what we had just watched. And this movie was no different. From this movie, we learned that the word samurai means one who serves. So, servant. The samurai viewed their lives as being completely lived for the service of their master, the emperor, their society, their shogun. And so every deed, every word, every thought, every action fit into that context of service. And none, none of the things that they ever did were by themselves a means to an end. The samurai warriors lived consistently and fully for the will of their master. So they, they lived with the highest levels of discipline, of sacrifice, and self, selflessness. The samurai lived by a code of virtues called the Bushido, which translates to the way of the warrior. And this way of the warrior was not just simply a list of rules to be followed. Okay? This was a set of principles that served as a foundation for their lives to be built upon. It, were, it was a set of principles by which the samurai warriors defined themselves. And so the seven virtues of the Bushido were as follows. First was loyalty. Okay? The samurai were completely loyal to the will of their master. There was a document called the Hagakure, written by a samurai noble named Yamamoto Sunetomo, And in it, he explains the Bushido in depth. Pertaining to loyalty, he said, For a warrior, there is nothing other than thinking of his master. No personal goal or satisfaction could equal to that service. Second was justice or morality. Um, If you know what is right, you must do it. Third was honesty, and by that they meant more than just expressing words that were true to your feelings. They meant that your actions had to match your words. So for them, this meant keeping your word, keeping promises. Fourth was respect, and by this they meant placing others on a higher footing than themselves. So it was very similar to the golden rule, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Fifth was compassion or benevolence. And for them, they meant that power was not meant to be abused. Power was meant to be used to benefit other people. Their power was to be used to affect others in a good way. And so the samurai devoted themselves to using their power to better the people around them. Uh, Number six was courage. And with courage, they differentiated that from recklessness, okay? The, the samurai didn't just rush into battle recklessly. They said to die without accomplishing your goal would be a wasted death. But they were willing to face death if that is what was necessary. And we'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. And the final virtue of the Bushido was honor. And this was living and dying in such a way that one's good name or the good name of the samurai, and especially the good name of their master, would be esteemed. So it was forbidden to do things that would weaken the reputation of 
the master to allow the samurai name to be insulted, to allow the master's name to be besmirched. Ultimately, the Bushido was summed up with the idea that one's life did not belong to him at all. This is how Yamamoto uh, described it in the Hagakure. He said, The way of the samurai is found in death. When it comes to the choice between life and death, you should choose death. There is no other reasoning. Move on with determination. No one longs for death. We can speculate on the things we like, but if we live without having attained our aim, we're cowards. This is an important point in the correct path of the samurai. If, by setting one's heart right every morning and every evening, One is able to live as though his body were already dead. And in so doing, he gains freedom in the way. His whole life will be without blame, and he will succeed in his calling. And so, we might say that the essence of Bushido is dying to yourself. My dad was so impacted by watching this movie and all the research uh, that we did into the samurai after watching this movie, that at the time, he was in the process of helping plant a church, and he was the youth pastor uh, of this church plant. So he decided to name our new youth group the samurai. Um, Hopefully, as we were reading through some of these uh, aspects of the Bushido, hopefully you noticed how much these ideas reflect truths that are taught to us in the scriptures. In the scriptures, we find the things that we just read, okay? Complete loyalty to our master. A life of justice and mercy. Having integrity and honesty. Following the golden rule. Using our power to benefit those around us being very strong and courageous, living for the honor of our master's name. Every single one of those virtues is deeply biblical. Now, of course, the samurai misapplied them because they used them to follow the wrong master. The master was the issue, not the virtue. It was the object of worship. But the virtues themselves, they got very, very right. And no virtue is better suited to our lives as Christians more than dying to yourself. Living as though the flesh is already dead. The Apostle Paul summed it up beautifully when he wrote the sixth chapter of Romans. And in verse 11, Paul said, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So if we wish to have the Lord plant the good seed of the gospel in our hearts, and if we wish to bear fruit for that gospel, the first thing we have to do is die. So, John chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, 
Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses, I'm sorry, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So let's set some context for this passage. This passage takes place just after the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the beginning of the Passion Week. Jesus, on a donkey, is led into the city of Jerusalem as the crowds around him are uh, singing and yelling, Hosanna, 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 Hosanna to the Lord of hosts. And so, after he enters into Jerusalem to the shouts and, and adulation of the crowd, uh, directly after this passage, he's going to find that this same crowd turns on him. The same crowd that cheered for his entry is going to cheer for his crucifixion. And so, he speaks truth here to a group of Gentiles showing that once again, as he has shown so many times, he came to save the whole world. He says here that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this concept of the hour or the time, depending on your translation, is a theme that has been running throughout the entirety of the Gospel of John. All four Gospels, as a matter of fact, note this. Jesus made reference to it many, many times in his ministry. Throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, we find him making a curious statement over and over and over again. And it it would be typically right after he would do an incredible miracle, he would say, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 2, verse 4, right before he performs his first miracle at the wedding at Cana, he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. In John 4, 21 through 23, he tells the woman at the well that the hour is coming. To the Jews in John 5, 23, he says the same thing. The hour is coming. In chapter 7, verses 6 and 8, uh, he, he tells the people, My time, or my hour, has not yet fully come. Towards the end of that chapter, the Jewish leaders try to arrest him, but none of them are successful in laying hands on him because it says, His hour had not yet come. Same thing happens in chapter 8, verse 20. The leaders want to put an end to him, but it says, His hour had not yet come. So nine times in the Gospel of John, Jesus either states or alludes to the fact, or John the narrator states or alludes to the fact that Jesus' hour had not yet come. So what did Jesus mean when he said this? Well, a few things. First, he had much to accomplish in his ministry before he was going to willingly give his life as a ransom for many. The Jewish leaders from the very beginning 
wanted to put an end to Jesus. They were always opposed to the ministry of Christ. But Jesus had a lot to accomplish. He had much more to do before the end of his ministry, before they, were, they would be successful in putting an end to him. He had miracles to perform. He had lessons to teach. He had lives to save. And so in that sense, his time had not yet come. At the same time, Jesus had also been spending years building a profile, building a persona of the Messiah that was completely unlike what the Jews expected. Because the Jews expected that when the Messiah came, he would be a political leader. That he would save them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. The Messiah would come riding in on a white horse. He would perform incredible signs and he would set them free. And he would set them in power politically over the Romans. And consistently, Jesus pushed back against that. He consistently displayed that the Messiah would be something entirely different. He told his disciples that the Son of Man will be given over to the chief priests and the elders who would mock him, spit on him, put him to death, but after three days he would rise. So throughout his ministry, Jesus would do miracles. But after he would perform these miracles, some of the people would would take it the wrong way. After Jesus would perform a miracle, the people would say, here's the Messiah. Let's crown him king. Let's weaponize him against Rome. For example, after the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, it says that the crowd was planning to take him by force and make him king. But Jesus withdrew by himself because his hour had not yet come. So for three years, Jesus has been building a case. But now, in John 12, we find the first instance of the phrase, his hour had come. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It was time now to show them everything that he had been foretelling. It was time now to display who he really was. After all, these Gentiles had just come and said, we want to see Jesus. Presumably because they wanted to see who the Messiah really was. And so it was time to do what he came to do. And what was it? that he came to do. Die. Because in dying, in laying down his life as a ransom for many, he would bring many sons and daughters to glory. Ironically, Jesus makes a direct connection from glory to death. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And how would he do that? By, like a seed, dying. Remember, the Jews expected that the Messiah would be glorified by putting his enemies to death. Jesus states here, the hour has come for me to be glorified. And the way that I'm going to do that is by dying a gruesome, humiliating death. And in doing so, he says, that his sacrificed life is going to be like a seed 
that germinates and bears much fruit. Now, you and I know the rest of the story. In real time, as this is happening, the disciples don't know the full story. We do. We know that Jesus laid his life down, and three days later, he rises from the dead. He defeats death itself and purchases for us our eternal salvation if we submit ourselves to him. And so the gospel includes both the gruesome death and the glorious resurrection. Within the context of that story, Jesus does something additional here in this text. He not only tells us what he is going to do to purchase eternal life for us, he also tells us that we must follow his example. Jesus makes it very clear that he is not the only one who is called to die. So look with me here again at verses 25 and 26. Jesus in verse 24 says that he is going to die. Verse 25, he says, whoever, loses, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So again, Jesus explained in the previous verse how he is going to be glorified by laying down his life. And then he looks out at the disciples and he looks out at the Greeks who've come to see him and he says, if anyone's going to serve me, he must follow my example. I want us to look at a, a parallel passage from the book of Luke to read Luke's account of a very similar speech. So look now at Luke 9, verses 23 through 27. Luke 9, 23 through 27. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he, if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So, Jesus is very clearly looking at his disciples and he's saying to them, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to live a fruitful life, if you're going to do what you are supposed to do, the first thing that you have to do is die. So if you're taking notes, here's point number one. The only way to live for Christ is to die for him first. The only way to live for Christ is to die for him first. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come 
and die. The full quote is as follows. Bonhoeffer says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death. Thus, it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. Let's take a look at how Paul described this in the book of Romans. I mentioned this text earlier. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 14. Paul says, What shall we say then? Or would you continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by baptism with him into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul says elsewhere in Colossians 3 verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. We need to understand that coming to faith in Jesus is not about cleaning ourselves up. It's not about doing better. It's not about working harder. Because there are a lot of teachers who will try to tell you, or a lot of churches that will try to act as if coming to Jesus is a matter of doing some things on a spiritual checklist. 
It's about being a better person. It's about believing hard enough. It's about doing spiritual things well enough. It's about having enough faith. But we need to understand that coming to faith in Jesus is not about doing better. It's about dying. Coming to Jesus isn't about living differently. It's about putting to death our sinful flesh and being being given a, a new life entirely. Surrendering to Christ in faith means surrendering our very life because we are trusting in him to give us a new one. And that is a very different approach than what the Jews at the time believed about the Messiah. Remember that the Jews believed the Messiah would bring them immediate power and position in this life. Instead, he laid his life down. And so you might say that the Jews were approaching the Messiah saying, what can you gain me? What benefits can you provide for me? How can you make my life easier? And that is, if we're being honest, how we so often approach God, right? How can you benefit me, God? How can you make my life easier? What what benefits can you provide for me? If I serve you, what's the quid pro quo? What are you going to give me in return? Let's make a deal. And in response to that attitude, Jesus told his disciples, and by extension he tells us, that that's not how we ought to approach the Messiah, saying, what can you give me? Instead, our approach ought to be, how can I serve you? How can I give you everything, Lord? How can I follow you no matter what it costs me? Death is costly. Death requires everything of us. It requires all, nothing held back. And so the question that we have to ask ask ourselves is are we willing to follow Jesus even if it costs us everything? What if it costs you your reputation? What if it costs you your success in this world? What if it costs you money? What if it costs you comfort? What if serving Jesus literally cost you your life in martyrdom? What if it cost you doing the things that you would rather do? What if it cost you the plan that you have made for yourself? What if it cost you the future that you have always looked forward to? Would you be willing to sacrifice those things to him if he asked them of you? What if, though, in return... What you receive is the promise of limitless eternal reward in heaven. You see, the issue is in this country that we have preachers like Joel Osteen who tell you that you can live your best life now. Live your best life now. But Jesus tells us that our best life is not now. Our best life is what is to come. If you're willing to lay this life down. So who are we going to trust? 
Jesus or Joel? Jesus, again, says in John chapter 12, whoever loves his life loses it. Meaning if this is the life that you value, if this 70 years on earth is what's most important to you, if the comforts of this world mean the most to you, you are going to lose those things. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, no matter what you gain, no matter what place you, you receive in society, at some point it is going to end just like that. You know, in, in the last year and a half, the only thing really that has been on our minds has been COVID. Coronavirus dominates the headlines every single day. We, we forget, or at least I have, I don't know if this is true for you, it's almost like we forget that there are other things that are happening that are costing people their lives, right? Other types of sicknesses still exist in this world. Other types of tragedies still exist. War, violence, disease, pestilence. Those things are still going on that are not related to coronavirus at all. Um, last week, I was um, visiting the same Notre Dame football website that I visit how many times a day, um, Blue and Gold Illustrated. It, I, I've been reading Blue and Gold since I was able to read. Right? My dad um, subscribed to the print edition of Blue and Gold uh, back before that was on the internet. And so every single day, I've been going on to Blue and Gold's website. Um, the editor-in-chief for Blue and Gold, Lou Simoji, last Saturday went to go play tennis with some of his friends. 58 years old, otherwise healthy. Goes to play tennis, drops dead. Right there on the tennis court. Heart attack. All that I had been thinking about was people dying from coronavirus. It's almost like I forgot there are things like heart attacks. I didn't personally know Lou Simoji. My dad did. But I'd been reading his stuff every day for two decades. And so <laughs> there was one point I was talking about it and my wife was like, wow, this is... Uh, this is really impacting you, huh? This, this has really gotten you hard. And I'm like, yeah, because it's a reminder just how suddenly it could be over for any of us at any moment. No matter what you gain in this life, no matter how successful you are, no matter how well-liked you are, if this life is all that you've got, if this life is all that you love, Jesus says you will lose it. It will be here today and gone tomorrow. We must not put this life first. Jesus says we must die. Point number two. Death to the flesh guarantees life to the spirit. Death to the flesh guarantees life to the spirit. I don't want it to be missed here. And all this talk about death, I don't want it to be missed here that there's a promise that comes with the command. You see, commands hardly ever come by themselves. Commands are typically given alongside promises. And the promise that we are given here is that when we take up our cross and follow Jesus, 
we are given eternal life in return. So right after saying, whoever loves his life loses it, this is in verses 25 and 26 of John 12, whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the promise, the Father will honor him. So there's at least two promises that are made to us here. The first we'll look at right now, and the second we'll look at in the final point. But the first promise is that of eternal life, and also phrased as, the Father will honor him. Eternal life and the honor of the Father are promised to us if we lay down our lives to Jesus. The second promise, which we'll look at here in a moment, is that we will bear fruit. Now, when Jesus says here that we must hate our lives in this world, I don't want us to miss what's really meant by that, okay? It's not as if Jesus is looking at us and going, so listen, here's the deal. You are going to hate every moment of your pitiful existence in this world, okay? It is going to be 0% fun. Right? And the only way to follow me is to walk around in this deep, hateful depression all day long, every single day. If you're ever happy, that means you, you're connected to the world and you ought not be. That's not what is meant here when Jesus says, hating our lives here on earth. Hating your life means ascribing to it the value that it actually deserves, This life that we have is a tremendous gift. We've been given to enjoy. We've been given to live with a life of joy. If you remember the the series that we went through in the book of Ecclesiastes, we talked over and over and over about how Solomon tells us that we ought to have a heart of joy, recognizing eternal perspective. And that's the key here, too that eternal life is infinitely more valuable than this life on earth. And so we have to treat it as such. We have to treat the next life as being infinitely, infinitely more valuable than this life. And when we compare the two, this life on earth and our life in eternity, this life on earth is so far behind, it's almost like hate. And so we we have this wild paradox, right? Keeping our life by losing it. Retaining what we're giving up. And on the flip side, if we try to hold on, we, we lose it. And so what Jesus is doing is he is asking us to weigh out what is most valuable to us. He's looking at each of us and saying, what is it worth to you? What's more valuable to you? 70 years of comfortable life on earth, living for ourselves and for our own interest, or an eternity of pleasure everlasting where we live for our maker? If you remember the story of the rich young ruler The rich young ruler came to Jesus, and and this was a man who had it all. He had position, 
He had power, he had influence, and he had a lot of money. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tests him by giving him a few of the laws of the Old Testament. And this rich young ruler has the arrogance to be like, oh yeah, I've kept all those since I was a kid. I'm good. Uh, What else do I have to do? And so Jesus looks right at him knowing what means the most to him. Knowing the thing that he has that holds him. And he says, how about you take all your stuff and you give it to the poor? Is it worth it? Is what I offer more valuable than that? And it says the rich young ruler walked away sad because he was very rich. The decision that that young man made was what I have in this life, it's more important to me than what you offer, Jesus. What what I have right now, man, I've got all this worldly stuff. I, I can't give all this up to follow after you. And one of the things that's significant about that story is that as the rich young ruler walks away, Jesus doesn't chase him. Jesus lets him walk. We don't find Jesus running after him going, wait, 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 wait. okay, hold on, don't walk away. Let's let's talk about this, okay? Obviously, you are someone who's interested in following me, so how about you tithe and we'll meet in the middle somewhere? That's not what Jesus does. Jesus lets the man walk because he sees into the man's heart and he sees that in that man's heart is an unwillingness to give up whatever it is that he holds in this short life. We don't know how long that rich young ruler lived. If he's lucky, he lived 70, 80, 90, maybe even 100 years. And that was thousands of years ago. And we don't even know his name. Do you think the choice that he made was worth it? No. Definitely not. Now unfortunately, unfortunately, the vast majority of people, the vast majority of people in this world are not willing to take the deal that Jesus offers. The vast majority of people are not willing to trade the lesser for the greater. The vast majority of people would say, "Ah, I I can't give up my popularity to follow after you, Jesus. Ah, Jesus, the thing is, I I can't give up my success in this world. Jesus, the thing is, I I don't want to give up the plans that I've made for myself. The thing is, Jesus, I I don't want to give up the influence. I don't want to give up being liked. I I don't want to give up my job. I don't want to give up this relationship that I know I'm not supposed to have. Whatever it is, most people are saying, see, Jesus, the thing is, this is so important to me that I cannot lay this down so so that I take what you offer. That is an unspeakable tragedy. Every single one of us knows people who have made that trade. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, each one of us can look into our own hearts and recognize that we have held things as more valuable than what Christ offers. And Jesus says to us, I promise you, I promise you, If you give it over to me, it will be worth it. 
If you give to me this thing that you can't keep anyway, it will be worth it. There's a famous quote by a guy named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary in Ecuador, one who famously lost his life. There, There was an unreached people group, and Jim Elliott died trying to reach this people group Uh, the Alcas, with the gospel. And in his journal that he was writing at the time, uh, this quote uh, comes from his journal. He says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. A man is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott recognized my very life is not worth holding on to if it costs me the promise that Jesus gives. Nothing that I hold dear is more valuable than the eternal promises of God. I can't even keep this anyway. None of us can. Just like what, 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 what happened to Luce Emoji last week. Just like that, it was over. Happened to my dad. My dad was in perfect health. He was the 5% man, according to his doctor. Just like that, he was gone. None of us are promised a day. What we are offered is eternal life. So let's go with what we are promised. Point number three. Death is followed by resurrection. Resurrection is followed by fruit. Let me uh, briefly remind us once more what the point is of this series, Replant, to teach us how to be people who grow the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We ought to want to bear that type of fruit. And the first thing that Jesus tells us in bearing fruit is that like a seed, we have to die. But then he promises that we'll be given new life. And then he promises that if the seed dies, it's also going to bear fruit. So we're not just promised eternal life. We are also promised fruitful life here on earth. See, Jesus literally died on the cross and because of his death we who have decided to give our lives to him are the fruit of salvation he paid the price for us all he purchased us from eternal damnation and then he calls us to follow his example luke 9:23 if anyone would come after me he must take up his cross deny himself and follow me. And he says, if you do that, you also will bear much fruit. So here's one of the things that we got to understand. Your salvation is not just for you. You were not given this gift for just you. You are saved from something And you are also saved to something. You're saved from sin, but you're also saved to mission. Mission that is so much bigger than you. 
In your dying to yourself and in your living fully for Jesus, you're not just given eternity with him. You also are given a fruitful life on earth. You are used by God to make a difference. And isn't that something all of us want? To make a difference in this world? Don't all of us want to be part of an epic story so much bigger than ourselves? The way that we do that in part is in realizing that your life on earth is not your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, Do you not know that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So the place that ultimately we need to get to is in realizing that this life does not belong to me. Where, where we see that we are not the center of our story. We are a part of his story. If a movie was made about your life, who would be the main character? Seems like a silly thing to ask, right? If a movie's being made about my life, wouldn't I be the main character of the movie? Well, not if we're living the way that Jesus calls us to live. If we're living in the way that Jesus calls us to live, when the movie is made about your life, you are a supporting cast member because the main character is Jesus. I want to remind us once more of the words of Yamamoto Sunitomo in the Hagakure. He said, The way of the samurai is found in death. When it comes to the choice between life and death, you choose death. There's no other reasoning. Move on with determination. No one longs for death, and we can speculate on the things that we like, but, but if we live without having attained our aim, we're cowards. This is an important point in the correct path of the samurai. If, by setting one's heart right every morning and every evening, one is able to live as though his body were already dead. In so doing, he gains freedom in the way. His whole life will be without blame. He will succeed in his calling. Do you want to succeed in your calling? Do you want the promise of eternal life? Do you want to live your best life forever? Do you want to make an eternal difference in this world every single day? Then, in the words of Bonhoeffer, come and die. And in Jesus, you will live. And the fruit that your life will produce will ripple for all of eternity. Your life will not be a wasted life. And on the day that you die... Whoever has the honor of standing in front of your dead body and eulogizing you will say, everyone here ought to live like this person. If that is how you want to be defined, the first step is death. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this evening, for the truth that you have called us to. God, I pray for each person here, Lord, for each person who is watching right now online, 
for each person who's listening online right now. God, I pray that if there are any people under the sound of my voice, Lord, who have never surrendered to you, who have never come to a place where they've said, I want to lay my life down. Lord, I pray that if there's any of those people that you would help them to realize that it's not about believing harder. It's not about praying a magic prayer. It's not about conjuring up enough faith, being better, doing better, promising to reform. Lord, I pray that you would call their hearts to realize that it's about surrender. It's about laying down. It's about saying, I'm putting myself, my flesh to death in order that I might have your life. Lord, I pray if there's anyone who needs to make that decision, Lord, that tonight you would call them unto yourself. God, for for any of us that are holding things back from you, for any of us that are, are, are holding things as being more valuable than they ought to be, ascribing eternal value to temporary things, God, I pray that you would help us to lay those things down tonight. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us, that that you would call us to surrender, that you would call us to come and die, and that in return you would give us the promises and the hope of everlasting life. Lord, that you would turn our lives into being lives that matter every day, that make an eternal difference, that bear eternal fruit. Let this church be a fruitful church. Lord, as we sing this final song in praise, God, I pray that you would help each one of us to deeply consider what obedience looks like, how we might follow you tonight. That you'd communicate that truth clearly to each one of us as we lift up our hearts to you in praise. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we will.